0: I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bang, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, conversations, interviews, streams of consciousness, and NBA references. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And please share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. Also, if you're looking for extra things to listen to during these challenging times, check out some other projects they put out. First, there's Plain Text Ideas, a podcast where big ideas get jotted down, then contemplated at length with experts. Next, Run It Back, a basketball retrospective podcast that looks at players, games, and moments in the NBA and basketball at large through pot of bang glasses. And finally, Game Federer, a podcast that relives and revisits every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm doing that one with my friend and broadcaster, Brian Clark. All those podcasts are now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to shows. So if that sounds like you, check those out. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a conversation I had with Armin Garrow. Back in November, Armin played Coco on the show, who fell victim to one of the worst curb stomps in TV or cinema history. That's all I got. Stay safe and be well out there, guys. Here's Armin. Armin, thanks for doing the podcast.
1: Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Where did you grow up? Give listeners a little context. Uh, Let's paint a little picture of your story before we get to the main event of The Sopranos.
1: I was uh, born and raised in Troy, New York. I I, uh, I first lived in Waterville, which is a small uh, upstate New York uh, town right across the Hudson River from Troy. And when I was about five or six, we moved to uh, Troy, the North Troy. It's called Lansingburg, right next, next to Knickerbocker Park. And I attended uh, Albany Academy, which is a uh, college preparatory country day school. Graduated, and I went on to uh, first uh, Norwich University, and then I transferred over to uh, uh, Emerson College in Boston.
0: I read that you uh, went to Norwich but left. I had a close friend that went there. Why'd you leave? Just curious.
1: Well... At the time, and it's a good school it's an excellent school um, it's it's changed quite a bit because i've met some some alumni from there since then and it's it's changed a lot. but at the time, I was the first graduating class of high school that did not have to be concerned with the draft into the military uh-huh. so and I wasn't really concerned about it. If I had to go, I was going to go but um I went I, I, I liked the uh I liked the structure in the military uh model. Uh, Albany Academy is modeled after West Point. I didn't have quite I didn't have the grades for West Point or the Naval Academy, so I uh applied to Norwich. who Had that same basic uh military model. I went up there and the uh, I was in the uh, drill team or uh the drill team company and I really liked it. Uh, I did mountain and cold weather training and the, uh, and, and then I started having, uh, and I wasn't the only one, there were other students, but there were some, there was a handful of students that had a problem with some of the hazing that went on. And it was, it's not the type of thing that people are used to. Mm. And I understand discipline and I understand structure, uh, and I embraced it. But the kind of thing that was going on at the time was far beyond what I was willing to uh, abide by. There were things that went on that were completely off the charts, completely. Uh, It got so bad that uh, one of the other officers, one of the cadre corporals in another company, was assaulted. They never found out who did it. I mean, he was someone snuck up behind him and hit him with a brick. Uh, Hit him in the head with a brick. He he turned out to be fine, but there were some pretty violent things that went on. There were some pretty uh, uh, denigrating things that went on. And uh, so rather than uh, take it, I resisted it. I I, I kind of fought back in a way that I could. Things didn't go well, and uh, there were some upperclassmen that didn't want me... (laughs) They didn't want me in the in the dorm anymore. So uh, I had a uh, I then I was ordered to go to the commandant's office and uh, discuss the issues with them. And uh, I mean, these were serious things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a few good men. As you're describing it, I'm hearing a few good men in my head. Yeah,
1: it was. Well, this was this went beyond that. There were—I don't know if i don't know if I—I'm able to repeat some of the things that I witnessed. It's not really comfortable listening to, but I went to the office of the command. I was ordered to go there, and he wanted to know what was going on. And uh, after I was accused of—I uh, was accused of—it it came down to being accused of uh, of lying about something, something very, very uh, minor. It was the. The time that I was announcing the uh, uh, assembly and the uh, falling in for uh, the mess hall, you had to do it according to the uh, the uh, clock on the uh, the hall, the main hall of the of the university, and I did. But apparently, the radio had, had some other time, and one of the one of the corporals tried to accuse me of lying by a minute or two. Uh, it was that kind of thing. Hmm. I went to the commandant's office, and we had a discussion. And I pretty much said, uh, I told him, I said, look, I said, uh, is I don't, I don't really, I don't know who some of these guys think they are, and I don't know what you think you're doing here. I said, I don't think it's you. I said, but there are some guys in that company and all over this campus that do some things that just don't sit well with me and a, and a few other guys. And I said, I'm not a behavior problem. I'm not. I said, but, and I I had some choice words and I said, don't think for a minute that you're not going to have a serious problem on your hands. Uh, so I was returned to my dorm and I was given the silent treatment, which was really, really childish. (laughs) It was funny, you know, but, uh, Uh, and then some of the things that we were made to do in the mess hall was, were were pretty, uh, sexually graphic and, uh, just, I mean, just things I could never, I mean, it's, it's stuff, it's stuff that I, uh, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind conveying it. Uh, sometime in a piece, but oh, it's pretty bad. It was pretty bad.
0: Yeah. I never expected to unearth such a Pandora's box, but I was looking through your story. No, it's and I, okay. Yeah. That's and all right. I, and, yeah, I, and I saw that. I'm perfectly that. good with it. I recognized Norwich and I was like, hmm, let me ask about that. Um, yeah,
1: but they don't do, they, they absolutely don't practice this, this kind of thing anymore. Sure. It's been done away with, uh, you couldn't survive. No school could survive, uh, uh, treating its uh, student body in this manner, and it's no harm, no foul. I mean, I sure. get it. I understand. There were a lot of guys there specifically going there to avoid the war, because you could you could you could uh, delay entrance into the war by going to us. Yeah, and uh, but there were some also, I, and I also met some very, very good people there. I mean, good soldiers, good 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 guys. You know. Hmm. Uh, brave people forthright people honest people so and it was just it was just a very few but there were there were some real real uh, there was some mazos that were there <laughs> it was an interesting experience but you know i made the best of it uh they put me in the uh the hall the dorm with that housed all of the command staff and uh i wrote out my my exams i i got through what i did and then i transferred to emerson college uh that was it. I ended the semester with an appendectomy, and that was that, <laughs> once I was home.
0: <laughs> Non-sequitur transition. Favorite music growing up? What kind of music were you into as a kid?
1: My favorite music? Well, I was I, I was naturally uh, heavily influenced by the Beatles, uh, Little Richard, uh, Elvis. And uh, as I got older it gravitated to uh things like uh music like you know Simon and Garfunkel uh Steels and Croft
0: I asked that question it's very specific to this uh, Sopranos project I'm doing The Sopranos is a very musical show the musical cues Oh yeah And the use of music is very intentional, very inspired. There's a lot of thought put into it. So everybody that I talked to that was a part of this experience, I like to ask what kind of music they were influenced by. That's that's the reason for the question. Um, Talk about your karate career back in the day. You kicked some major ass. Well, uh,
1: I I didn't think I, I... I mean, I actually got My ass kicked pretty much twice in my in my professional career there, <laughs> so uh, it was kind of the other way around
0: How'd you find karate and how did that how did you you, you followed it through to the very very end um I believe you had I followed
1: it through as yeah, as much as I could without really getting messed up um when I first moved uh, my mother was from she was born and raised in Providence, Rhode Island, but I'd grown up in upstate New York, so after my dad died. Uh, he died about a month and a half or so after I turned 18, and then I graduated high school. So, within the next couple of years, when I was at, uh, and then that was at Emerson, uh, my mom uh, sold the family home and she moved back home to Rhode Island. So I was—we had always gone to Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island for, you know, Christmas, Easter, uh, once during the summer, Thanksgiving. Those were our. Uh, uh, there are annual, you know, four time a year tracks up there. So, um, uh, she, uh, she bought a, she got an apartment and bought a house. So I was going back and forth to Providence, Rhode Island, much more, much more often spending more time there. And I, uh, befriended someone, uh, at the, uh, at the church that we went to, uh, good kid. And he had, I was looking to, um, to, uh, stay in physical, good physical condition because I was, I had, uh, once I had left, uh, Emerson, I, I used, I wrestled at Emerson and, uh, on the team there. And I didn't have any more college eligibility to do any other sports. I wasn't a, I wasn't a professional athlete or anything like that. I just wanted to do something to, to train and to work out and to to, to feel good about myself like anybody would, you know? So, uh, a friend of mine, Told me about George Bizzari's Kenpo Karate Institute on in Providence, Rhode Island, and I had heard, I had heard about him. He was uh, widely known throughout uh, the country as uh, it was a pretty tough school. And I thought, well, this might, you know, so it might be interesting. So I went up there and I met him, met George, and he said, well, the first thing you should do is watch a class. So I watched a class, and it looked, it looked pretty, looked pretty brutal. But I thought yeah, this is, here's a challenge. Here's something, here's something to occupy myself. Here's something that I could, I think I could do this. I mean, and I'm just talking about the working out. I'm not talking about fighting or any of the other things that are associated with, you know, karate, just, just the training. So I, I went up and I barely, it was an hour and I barely, I barely (laughs) made it through, uh, my my first instructor was uh, uh ray calori he was one of george's black belts students a uh, real good good person and i remember standing in front of a clock watching the minutes and just begging to the top of the hour to come so i could stop i almost almost passed out but i i forced myself through and uh i made it through and i stayed there and i i just loved it i absolutely loved it. three times a week and one time I was uh, no four times a week Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and then Saturdays, and I absolutely, absolutely loved it. I loved every bit of it, and I soon started uh, fighting professionally for George, and uh, loved it even more. and And that's how that happened. I think one day he was uh, Danny Macaruso was sparring one day in the school. At the time, he was uh, New England. I think it was New England middleweight, uh, New England middleweight champion, tall, lanky kid, good kid. He's become a good friend of mine. And he later became the world light heavyweight champion in, in the kickboxing in the PKA, Professional Karate Association. And George looked at me watching. He says, hey, uh, you think you want to try that? I said, hey, sure, sure. You know, why not? I, I'm thinking, what could possibly happen to me? I was about 200 pounds. This kid's about 169, 172 pounds. He's skinny. What's going to happen to me? And before long, we were fighting. We were sparring. And I wound up on my back uh, looking up, seeing purple, green, and stars. And, uh, yeah, I had gotten hit in the face.
0: Foot or hand? But the
1: next day, I, uh, it was a, it, was a, it was a punch. It was a punch, but I had also been kicked a few times, and uh, I went back the next day. And George, he once told me, he says, he says, you know, you know, when I had made a uh, had made a judgment about you, you want to know when it was? I said, well, no. What? He says, you came back the next day after getting c- cracked by Danny. <laughs> Most people would just leave. <laughs> but it was it was quite a quite an experience uh, uh, training with there at that at that karate school because he'd he had trained uh, uh a fellow by the name of Bobby Ryan who became the world welterweight and, and later the world super middleweight uh, champion uh, in the WKO uh, WKA rather uh, I think it was no there was a WKO he had uh, he had beaten Blinky Rodriguez who was another very tough fighter in Las Vegas And Bobby, uh, his name was Bobby Ryan. He also was one of George's black belts. And, uh, I was, uh, I I had like an, I think I had, I had about 11 fights, nine and two record. Uh, the, the biggest fight was fighting, uh, big John Jackson of Gary, Indiana. I fought him in Lynn, Massachusetts at the Harborside hotel. He, uh, at the time he was ranked, uh, third in the world, and he was the U.S. heavyweight champion. And I had a non-title fight with him with a clause that indicated that if I uh, if I beat him on points, I would uh, get the uh, right to fight him for the U.S. title. And hmm. uh, I think in, that was going to be in Lake Tahoe later that year. And if I knocked him out, uh, the title would change hands. That was one of the agreements that we had in the contract. But uh, I spent seven rounds... Trying to avoid getting kicked by what felt like telephone poles, when he kicked, <laughs> he kicked me, uh, and I, 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 I lost on a seven round, uh, seven round points.
0: How many uh, rounds are in a karate match?
1: Well, uh, at, that, at that time, we're going back a while now, uh, in the seventies uh, and eighties. Uh, a typical match would be three rounds. Uh, uh three uh two minute rounds and then they extended them to five title fights were usually seven uh, uh regional fights were seven rounds or or more and world world title u s national titles or world titles uh i believe were about uh, twelve rounds uh i'm not sure if they did the they might they may there may have been one scheduled for fifteen but i think they were most uh that's when Randall Tex Cobb was a uh, fighter too. He uh, was a kickboxer uh, who later fought Larry Holmes, but um, as a boxer,
0: how many degrees of black belt are there?
1: Well, traditionally, it's it's no higher than than ten for instructors,
0: um, and you have nine. The, right? The
1: degrees are usually yes, the, uh, I'm in ninth. Usually, the the degrees are dictated by uh, the. Uh, i'll have to let me let me just digress to the first degree when you're up for your first degree black belt and it and it this varies from school to school it's it's different everywhere you go it's a it's a it's it's a very uh non it's it's not that standardized and universal from mm. school to school uh but if you're if if you're going someplace and you're training uh and you're going up for tests i mean the whole idea behind it is that you're learning to defend. I mean, the first reason you go there is to learn to defend yourself, and that was one of the that was one of my uh, reasons for going. I wanted to be able to stay in shape, to be able to defend myself, because you know we, the the world was become, becoming a rapidly a violent place, and people would get assaulted for one reason or another. But if you're going to go to a place and get and get instruction on defending yourself. You should go to a place that's really making it difficult for you to do that, not a place where it's very easy to go through your belts and get this and get that and trophies and all of that. And his school, Georgia School, was one of those the places where it was very difficult just to get through a workout, let alone get through a test. But my first degree, all of our tests were fairly brutal. They were very, very tough. It was bare knuckles. No padding. I mean, you had to wear a cup. You had shin guards. But there were none of the padding. Uh, unless you were in a tournament, they would have the thin padding. Uh, much the same way you see in the MMA fighters now. But like a two-ounce padded glove. And uh, when I went from my, all my belt levels, uh, it was a tough test. And my, my, uh, my black belt test was a three-day test, four hours a day. Um, some of it blindfolded, uh, some of it fighting more than one person while blindfolded. And, uh...
0: So that's real. That's not stuff you see in the movies where they put a blindfold on. what... What is the philosophy behind being able to react blindfolded? Like, what is the, like, what have you learned? What have you internalized to be able to react blindfolded? Can you articulate that?
1: Well, you never know if you're going to get assaulted in the dark, or if, for some reason, you can't see. It doesn't have to be; you you may not necessarily be blindfolded. You just you just may not be able to see well for one reason or another. If if a substance was thrown in your face or something like that, um, and much of the time was that's pretty much the reasoning there. And the other thing was uh, a lot of it was. Uh, Getting getting hit when you don't know you're going to get hit, and what better way to do that than to blindfold someone? So George would blindfold you, and then somebody, or he would uh, would punch you either in the face or somewhere on your body. And uh, it's important to be able to take to take a shot, to take a hit as hard as possible, um, uh, because that that actually may happen to you if you're getting assaulted by a group of people and you want to be able to fight through it because uh, it's, it's not important how you can kick or punch. What's important is how do you respond after having been kicked or punched when you didn't even know you were going to get kicked or punched. And that would be one of the reasons behind hanging us. We, we, we would hang from the pull-up bar and we, got, we would get hit uh, repeatedly uh, with an axe handle uh, thighs, calves, uh, midsection, uh, sometimes blindfolded, sometimes not because you just don't know when. Uh, I mean, I'll never forget my, my, I had my, my, my midsection, my abdomen swelled up so much. My shirts were tight from the swelling, but after going, after having gone through that, after having gone through that, you you don't wonder if you're going to be okay if someone attacks you. You know you're going to be okay. You,
0: sure. <laughs> you,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. You know you're going to be okay, and that's what You've that's been what through. helped me survive as a yeah. And I mean, yeah, that's what helps you survive. If let's for example, when I was on the police department, uh, I didn't care if I got assaulted. I knew that that was part of the gig. I knew that was part of it. I knew people didn't like police, and I knew I mean they didn't. I mean, they usually show up when there's always someone that's irritated that you're there Yeah and they don't want you there. And there would be people that would threaten you. And I, I would commonly tell someone who was getting ready to take a shot at me. I said, OK, if you want to do it, I just don't want to let you know you're, you're, you're going to hurt yourself hitting me so much. I said, I don't care what you do. And I said, I don't care if I have to go to the hospital. I said, I'm an only child. I Remember, I told this one kid, I'm an only child. I don't have any brothers or sisters. I don't have any friends. My parents are gone. I'm a lonely type. So you will be going with me, coming, keeping me company. I'm leaving. But I don't know about you, but I'm going to leave that hospital. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but clear. I never had to worry about, I never I never worried or panicked about what was going to happen if I got hit or if I something happened, I would break a finger because... I knew and george and George took it that to, through that kind of training that no matter what, and I mean no matter what you'd be able to get through something and survive it and you know be around to to be okay so that you could continue on with your life uh, there aren't too many there aren't too many karate schools like that there in his his the only other karate school that I knew that that taught like that was. George's first black belt, Roger Carpenter, who opened up a school, several schools in Wichita, Kansas. He just passed away about a year and a half ago. Uh, And toughest, toughest guy, Roger Carpenter, was absolutely the toughest, toughest guy I ever saw. In 1973, he had a bare knuckles match in Oklahoma City that uh, pretty much laid the groundwork and, and predated MMA fighting. It was a nasty, nasty fight.
0: Favorite martial artist right now? Do you have one?
1: Current. Uh, Current I have yeah. to say I, I I you know I I started I and I and I don't want any I don't want anyone to make any uh I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. I I never really there was no MMA fighting when I was sure, when I yeah. was fighting. And uh I, I look at that as being pretty much the real deal of what's going on right now. I mean, they've got some real real dedicated good fighters i'm very impressed with them but uh let me see there's a fellow that fought uh, uh, Mac- uh connor mcgregor uh diaz uh i oh my god real uh very very loose relaxed tough fighter Uh, his last name is Diaz. I I wish I could remember his last name. I can't remember his first name, but, uh,
0: Not to put you on the spot. I'm I'm just curious. You have this this background. Uh, Last bit of background. before we talk about your acting career later, I read that you went to law school, but left early something I probably should have done too. I finished. Um, why'd you decide to leave law school?
1: I had gotten a masters de- I had gotten let me see when I when I, when I got on the department I had um started a masters program in the administration of justice and uh there was a stipend uh of of uh, $3500 a year for those students who uh had masters de- for for those police officers who had masters degrees uh, I found out once I got the masters degree that I had didn't qualify for the 3,500 because I needed a, uh, a a supporting bachelor's degree in the same field. So my bachelor's degree in in speech communications was was didn't matter to them. So I thought, okay. So I I got the bachelor's degree uh, it, in the, the administration of justice uh, at Roger Williams uh, college to Roger Williams university. The, the masters was at Salva Regina, the Newport college, which is Salva Regina university now. And by the time I had gotten that and qualified the, uh, there was no funding, <laughs> there was no funding <laughs> for the, for the 3,500. So, uh, so they had, ch- so that was, you know, bad luck on my part. But, um, I really enjoyed what I was doing at the police department, and I I looked forward to doing more. And uh, uh, it, it seemed like a natural uh, a natural step to uh, uh, attain a law degree and uh, possibly work uh, in 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 closer conjunction with the 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 attorney general's office if I could retire and possibly. Uh, oh, did you, prosecute uh, under as an assistant a g or work somewhere in the attorney general's office that that's how i was thinking and so i did and uh i got through my first year and uh in my second year and i was it was i was it was a lot on my plate you know going to work uh and then and then going to law school. I got through my first year all right. I really enjoyed it. It was very, very challenging. Uh, Probably the most, uh, in a a cerebral sense, the most challenging thing I ever did. And I, in my second year, uh, I had ran into some really, I was battling some real personal problems at home. Things were not going well. and. I was getting very exhausted and uh things at work were tough were getting tough as uh my uh I had a promotion uh to a higher rank of sergeant so my shift had to change so I started having to work midnights and uh attending law school during the you know the hour the evening hours and uh it was just getting Harder and harder, and then I, and then as uh, my mom died, that was, that was a, uh, my mom had passed away, and it was just difficult to hold everything together. And I took a leave. I went back, but it was the, I pr- the the interest was was waning, was was waning. It was, you know, it, it just wasn't there anymore for me. And I thought. After, after all of the stresses of being a police officer for 20 or 25 or 30 years, am I really going to want to deal with what goes on in the administration of justice or in the criminal justice system? Am I really going to want to deal with this? Am I really going to want to deal with people's uh, trust in me with their finances or their personal issues or their criminal accusations or civil matters? Am I really going to want to do that? And the answer was no. I I I don't want. I mean, I just don't want this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I've I've had it. I've just had it. So I I uh, I try my best to get through my second year uh, when I re when I uh, re registered because I took a leave because my mom had passed away. I did the best I could, and I didn't make it through. Uh, by that end of that year, I'd I'd, flunk, I'd failed. Uh, I'd flunked out. And I couldn't get into my uh, third year, and I thought, yeah, that's it this is not it really isn't for me and uh And I'm glad I did it because uh it was it wasn't something that I really loved to do and uh so i I left and oddly enough i didn't I didn't read anything for about a year. I didn't read anything.
0: You read a lot in law school, it's enough to take the reading passion out of you, isn't it? That's all you do. Yeah.
1: That's all I would read. I would read street signs, (laughs) you know, I'd see street signs or directional signs on my way to work or something like that. But that was about it. I really didn't read. Uh, the only thing I read were police reports that I had to as part of my obligation as a supervisor, but that was it. I didn't do any leisure reading and slowly, but surely after a while I did. And, uh, I just, that's when I decided I was just going to do what I loved to do. And that was the theater and film and television. And I, I dedicated more of my time to that.
0: Perfect segue. How did the Sopranos happen for you? What's the story?
1: Um, uh, one of, somebody I knew, uh, had said to me one day, he says, Hey, uh, what do you think we go down to Jersey they're having this open call casting call with the Sopranos and I hadn't I had not watched that show but I knew I didn't have HBO at the time and I, but I knew about it and uh he says why don't we go down there you know and I said no forget there's going to be too many people it's going to be it's going to be crazy and it was and they couldn't even see all of the people we didn't go I didn't go I think he did uh but not everyone that was down there was seen because there were thousands and thousands of people so and instead of really you know going there and having a uh, picture taken they just had people drop off their photos and resumes into a bin so one day uh I was I was at my house but I had I did mail a couple of headshots and resumes to the casting office so one day I'm at home and I'm I happened to be reading the, the the paper about the uh, the departed uh, that I had done previously um, that that was uh, it won some awards some Golden Globe awards you know Marty Marty was getting his recognition that was due him for doing the work that he did on that which was really good. I was happy about it I was reading my phone rang and it was George Ann Walken the casting director for The Sopranos. And, um, she wanted to know if I, I, uh, if this, if the way I was talking on the phone is the way I talk. And I said, well,
0: uh, the way you're uh, talking to me she, right well, now, in other words.
1: Yeah. I said, is this <laughs> the way you, is this the way you talk?" I said, well, uh, no, I, I can do, I can do other, no, no, no. That's the way you're talking is just fine. I said, Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, And, uh, she wanted to, uh, have me come down and, read for something i said that's wow i said i never thought that you would get a chance to see my headshot and resume because i know you get so, so many thousands a week she says oh we can't we can't even do that we have so many um i said how did you how did you know to call me she said the writing staff for the sopranos had gone to see the new york premiere of the departed and uh saw my my bid in that and wanted me to come in to read for uh for a new uh, a new character they were developing for the last season. So I went down and uh went to her office, I met her, wonderful person. And uh I read for I did some generic mobster reading, you know. Uh, yelling at someone, telling them to F themselves, or I'm going to give you a crack. Who do you think you're talking to? Who the F you think you're talking to? Things like that. The usual uh, mob vernacular, you know? And uh, based on that, they brought me in to read a couple of uh, scenes that had been uh, already uh, published and were broadcast. Uh, one with uh, that Michael Imperiali had done as Christopher and. One that uh, Dan Grimaldi had done as Patsy. Mm-hmm. And I did both scenes. And uh, it was for uh, Tim Van Pat- Timothy Van Patten, who, I, who directed me in my uh, two episodes. Really great guy, great director. And, and uh, David Chase over at uh, Silver Cup Studios. And uh, it was one of the few times after, after having done it. And I have to credit Georgian Walken because she's she's an excellent reader and she knew exactly what what marks to hit on these uh on these readings. Uh, much the same way Ellen Lewis does when she casts. Ellen Lewis is another uh excellent casting director. But I got I, I left them? and it was one of the Well um what separates them i mean and i and I put in that category Meredith Tucker, she's another one um, what separates them is every once in a while uh, when you go in, of course you know next to nothing about what's going on um and of course you're nervous and you're nervous you you're next to nothing- you know you don't know what much of what's going on, and you don't know much about the story uh they're very good at kind of filling you in on what's going on and what this is about and what they're looking for and the, act, the literal reading of it when they read with you. They've, they've got their timing down. They've got their... Uh, 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 they understand uh, uh, the people, the characters, the roles that they're reading. They understand them as an actor would understand them. You see what I'm saying? Is
0: it accurate to say that they're very good at setting you up for success?
1: Oh, they they want you to be successful. They want everyone that comes in there to be successful. Yes. Uh, all of the casting directors do. They all do. They all want to be able to send the producers uh your best foot, your best you know the, the best that you can do and they want that. But what separates them is a a, a real uh just a real commitment to uh What's happening on the other side of the tripod and the camera that's being set up to film you, and it's it's a combination of knowing about the material, answering any and all of your questions about what you're doing, uh, and combine that with an overall uh sense of uh, of uh, of a comfort zone in the uh, in in the room, in the office. I think that's that's as best as I can uh, say that.
0: Wonderfully, it's, it's a comfort zone. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's it's important to have a comfort zone because it's it's as competitive a business as you can imagine. They're literally looking at they might at sometimes they might be looking at four five hundred people for a particular role or maybe just twenty. But as as you get better and better at what you're doing, and you're going in for you know more significant roles you're up there with the absolute best there is the best. And that's, it's kind of cool. And it's really cool when that happens, you know, that, you know, if you, if you're going to do it, do it right. And I really, I've always been attracted by that kind of, uh, uh, by the work ethic that's involved with, uh, competing for things like that, you know? And, uh, and that's what happened. And I got, I got cast and, uh, the what happened was I was uh, cast. Uh, she, uh, George Ann, called me up and she said, "Well, you, they, they really love you. Uh, welcome to the team." And uh, that's how that went. And uh, it was a tremendous, tremendous experience because when I was on set, on location with uh, the cast and crew, I felt like I was a member of the team. I, I was treated like I'd been there all along, and it was so comforting and so nice. And it happened at a time when, right at that time when things were uh, very, very tough, very, very tough at work. We were reeling from the, uh, the, uh, the killing of one of our officers. Uh, it was a friend of mine and uh, a lot of managerial uh, problems were happening at the police department because of that.
0: You were still working as a cop when you got booked for the show. Yes, So it was a good thing. It was like a fortuitous timing is, is what you were trying to say before I cut you off. The
1: timing could not have been better because, yeah, because it was a, you know, my mom had been passed for a few years and I was, you know, I was reeling from some personal matters and things that were going on at work and things were really tough, but this was that one little bright spot that was, uh, that's why driving. It was it was that one bright spot I had, and I gave it everything I had. And when I left that studio to go down to my car, I you know I just kind of told my mom. I said, "Well, you know, you don't have a lot of I don't have a lot of auditions where I feel really good about it. I usually feel that I could have done this right, I could have done that a little bit better. And this one I left. I thought, well, mom, can't argue. If I don't get this, it's okay because." I left my I left a good one up there. I left a real good one in the room, so i'm good and I think one of the important things that people have to understand is when you when you're going to audition for something you're not auditioning for that role you're auditioning for things that these people may have in mind for later projects that they do, and they'll remember you and they'll call you back in so it's 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 significant uh it's just a significant if you're not getting booked at a particular role as it is, if you are, of course you're getting paid when you book, but if you don't, uh, that's no reason to fret because
0: you're filed people away will remember in the back that of you had
1: a, Oh yeah. And literally filed away on their, on their file folders and on clips, you know, Hey, look, remember so-and-so two years ago when he read for that, Yeah. know, well, Why don't we bring him in? Because I think he'd be good for this. That that happens. That happens all the time.
0: I'm thrilled it worked out for you. And and little did you know you'd be immortalized on the greatest show, greatest series of all time. Um, You played Salvatore Coco Cogliano, a soldier in the Lupertazzi crime family, who did the one thing you don't do in that thing of theirs, and that's go near the kids. Um, It's one of the most unforgettable curb stomps ever documented in film or TV. And knowing you now a little bit through conversation, I wondered if those instincts and reflexes had come to the surface, your karate instincts and reflexes, I should say, when your character has his final showdown with Tony Soprano. Memories from shooting that sequence.
1: Yeah, that was... um, Well, when when they they uh, they uh, sent me the the script the final the script of of e- describing exactly what you just talked about they uh i didn't have a i didn't have a fax machine i didn't have fax capability in my house and uh so i said well look i'm i'm going to go down to staples i'll let you know when i'm there and i'll give you the number they said okay so i go to staples i call them up and they said are you at the fax machine? I said, well, it's right across the counter. I said, well, then they said, well, make sure no one looks at this. We we don't want anybody seeing this. It's got to be you and you and all. I said, fine. So I can into the fax. Yeah, they don't want anybody seeing it. I know, it, you know? that's so legendary. That.
0: They're so, so meticulous about it. I love that. I love that. We it's, have
1: to be. Yeah. You have to be. Because... You know, when you when you do things like if you tell someone you're not going to show anybody, you don't show anybody. Right. If you t- if you get a sign a non disclosure agreement, it, 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 it administer the thing and and, and adhere to it.
0: Be impeccable with your word. Don't,
1: yeah. Don't don't take selfies in the wardrobe room. And I mean, I just don't. There's certain things I just don't do. Yeah. You know, if unless they say it's okay, fine, but. I will. I, I stick to the rules when because they're the producers. They're the ones signing the checks. That's the way you want it done. That's the way we're going to do it. So I, I did it exactly what they wanted. I did it exactly what they wanted. So I, I looked at the script. I, I, I secreted myself in a part of the store, and I started perspiring. And I, I'll never forget it. I'm looking down, thinking, "Oh my god, oh my god, holy." Oh my God! Look, at, I don't believe it. Now, by that time, because I had booked the show, I started uh, when, when I got the audition. I started binge watching it as much as I could. All right, and I and I knew I knew by that time, no one just just as you said, no one had ever done this before. No one had gone near the kids. No one had talked about the kids. No one had accosted the kids. I, I, oh my God! oh my God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assault this girl. Holy jeez. And I'm thinking to myself, whoa, this is special. This yeah. is special. So I hurry home.
0: And in binging it, and in binging it, sorry to cut you off, just to feed on your momentum here, in binging it, you're you're realizing Tony Soprano's menace and what he could potentially do to someone that goes near his kids. Right.
1: And of course, I'm, now I'm going, I'm racing home and I can't tell anybody. <laughs> I can't tell anybody. Sure. Right. So I'm just. I mean, I wouldn't even tell anybody I booked it. I didn't even tell anybody that. I just was racing around the house, doing the I bought a new house dance, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I I went down there and uh, and some of the work that I had done. I had done uh, stage fighting with uh, when I was at Trinity Rep Conservatory. I received the stage fighting instruction from uh, Bill Patton, I believe. Yeah, Bill Patton. Uh, he was our gym and stage fighting instructor, and that came in handy. Uh, the work I had done as a fighter had come in handy. Uh, at the time, I had uh, some injuries that were I was recovering from, but there were no worries. they They had a they had a stunt double next to me, and uh, I kept on. Going through the motion, I was working with Jimmy with uh, doing it twenty five percent motion, then fifty percent, then seventy five, and then a hundred. As he came across, as he came across with the uh, the gun to my face, and we kept doing it over and over and over and over. You know, we you just rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it. It's a dance. And uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, as you can see on the film, it just it works out beautifully, and we Legendary. timed it perfectly yeah we kept on timing it we timed it and I kept on going down down with the pan and everything it was at uh, it was at uh, John's on 12th street where we filmed that yeah uh, one uh, an Italian restaurant in New York's east side and um, so uh, the, the stunt the stunt double says to me he says look uh, anytime you want to step in you know if you're okay because I wasn't wearing knee pads or hip pads or anything but I knew how to fall I knew how to fall and, uh, because you do learn some of that in your, in, you know, your karate training. exactly the, Yeah. And that it was coming in handy. So the stunt double said, uh, anytime you want me to step in, I said, no, I'm doing fine. I said, but if he wants me to go through that plate glass window onto a car, I said, you are stepping in <laughs> my friend.
0: Trust me. <laughs> I was going to say, you didn't tell the stunt double, uh, I'm a ninth degree black belt, bro. I got this. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't do
1: that. Yeah. Nah, no, no. <laughs> So it went well. It went well. And it uh, was a real, it was a real uh, joy to work with those people. And, uh, I had a blast. I absolutely, I knew, you know, every time I work with, with, uh, on any job, on any job, I embrace it fully because you just don't know, uh, how long it's going to be before you're back in that kind of zone again, or if ever. So you try to do the best you can while you're there. And, that was one of those. Uh, that was one of those times. I just thought, man, this is, this is just a. It's like a dream, you know. You feel so blessed.
0: I'm gonna say a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind today. James Gandolfini.
1: Very gentle, very gentle, and sorely missed.
0: David Chase.
1: A guy who really put his nose to the grindstone because he was, uh, his work wasn't. Uh, uh, freely accepted when he wrote under his name, David, uh, Cesare, which is his name. He changed it to chase so he could get himself to be, to, to his pitched ideas would be accepted. Uh, good man. though, knows his stuff.
0: Greg Antonacci.
1: Uh, you know, I just found out he passed away. Yeah. He passed away a while back. Uh, I got to be friendly with him. uh, he used to write for Laverne and Shirley uh-huh. years ago. Yep, and uh, very nice man. He very accessible. Uh, anything you wanted to ask about any aspect of the business, he would ask. We, I remember we went uh, we went and had sushi together when, during one of our breaks nearby, and a real, real delightful, nice nice guy.
0: One of the best character names in the show, Butch. Um, and he had, oh, yeah. he had such yeah, a and presence. He and was, he was really good on Boardwalk Empire, too. Yes, he was. Very, very strong presence on the show, on the screen. Oh, yeah. Um, Some other projects you've been a part of, uh, Leaving the Sopranos, I'm going to rattle a couple of them off, um, and I'd like you to just say a word or two about that experience or the people involved or any specific memories that are top of mind. You mentioned The Departed earlier. When I say The Departed today, what comes to mind for you?
1: The first thing that comes to mind is the fact that, uh, well, there were two things. Uh, First, it was uh a time when i had confided in my karate instructor because we was, we would chat about some things once in a while and i was kind of telling him about this this going you know to the audition for this and i i could trust him to to uh, uh not repeat anything i was saying but the most uh the vivid memory i have is uh being convinced that i wasn't going to get Booked on that uh, in that film, because it was so long between the period of time I uh, had the final uh, call back with Marty in Boston, uh, and it seemed like uh, an eternity had passed. And I called them. I said, you know, maybe it's me. Maybe there's something about me that's not cinematic. I'm doing something wrong. And maybe, maybe this acting thing, maybe at this level, maybe I'm finally, uh, I, maybe I've risen to the level of my own failure. Maybe that, maybe this is not it for me, you know, because I'm just not getting a call for this. If I can't, you know, if I can't tell someone to stick a gun up their butt and F themselves, it's much more graphic than that convincingly. If I can't do that, then, you know, maybe this business is not the business for me. And then of course I got booked. And the other thing I remember is, uh, it actually, that's, that was the project that act that gave my career traction it gave it real traction uh, it was it 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 led to other work it directly led to work in the sopranos and it's it it serves as a foundation uh for a lot of the other work that i do and each 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 each, each project that you work on adds adds to that foundation
0: wolf of wall street
1: well that was the uh it was it, the nice part about that is that i was wondering she was. Um, what am I doing here? You know how come? How come he wanted me to do this? Because he had Marty had reached out, uh, had his casting. He had Ellen Lewis called our my agent, and he specifically wanted me. He spe- uh, he wanted uh, Louis Venaria, uh, who played Crazy Mario in Bron- a Bronx Tale, mm-hmm. and Gary Pastore, who uh, Marty worked with in uh, Goodfellas, and. and Who's done some memorable he was he had just done the Deuce uh on uh, HBO. Uh we were we were uh in a background in a scene at Rayo's restaurant, Rayo's on the east side of New York, uh with Bo Deedle and Leo DiCaprio.
0: Frank Pellegrino's and, uh, the, restaurant. The, yes, yes.
1: Yes, yeah, Frank... Kubicoso
0: e. uh, on the Sopranos.
1: Yeah. He uh he, he was there that night you know, hanging out, and uh, it was, a, what an interesting place that is, mm-hmm. you know, so, so uh, we're in there, and the, the film had wrapped, but they needed this one scene to insert the relationship between the, the, the main character and, and Bo Deedle, an, an investigator he had hired, I think Bo played himself there, uh, to find out what was going on with the uh, federal investigation, and all, we were in the background. And it was so nice of Marty to do that because we didn't even audition for this. He just, you know, my agent just called me up and said, can you be in New York for a fitting and to work overnight at this restaurant? And I said, yeah, sure. I said, when's the audition? They said, no, no, no. He specifically asked for you and two other guys. I said, fine. So I went and had the fitting. I went and did it. And after we shot, it was like 6 in the morning because we started around 10 at night. I said, Marty, this was so nice. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, this was uh, so nice of you. I really appreciate. It. You could have gotten stand-ins or or uh, uh, extras to do what we did, but you know, as principal actors, we were we were given uh, a good pay. And uh, he says, Well, I just want to get you in there. Just want to get you in there. Get you all in there and involved. And that was it. would have been eight years. Eight years since the departed. Yeah. I was surprised he even remembered me. You know. But uh, that was the that was the most invigorating uh, uh, experience I'd ever had, where someone remembered me from before and specifically asked that me, that I and two other actors that he had worked with before uh, come in to do this scene when we're not even you won't pick us out. We're just a blur in the background, you know, and so appreciative. It made me really. It made me feel good, and 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 uh, I got. I went up to Leo and said, "Thank you for not kicking the crap out of me this time." And he says, "Oh, dirty, dirty people! My friends love that scene. <laughs> so that was that was kind of cool that he remembered that so so nicely. They had a good fond memory of it. You know, of course, it was nice. He's a good kid, real good kid.
0: Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad I asked. I was wondering about that. Um, yeah. Thoughts on vinyl and why it didn't break through.
1: Well, uh, it was, I thought it was, uh, a groundbreaking project. Uh, and I thought the, uh, the writing was absolutely superb. Of course it was Terry winter. And, uh, one of the things about Terry is that anything he writes, when you go in for an audition, it's it just there's such a poetic rhythm and flow and tone to his writing he's so familiar with the way these people talk so when you go in there there's it it just flows you know when you first read it and it becomes so much easier to to work with and uh superb work done by all of the actors i i got to meet and, and be friendly with some really great, great people there, and uh, working with uh, Bobby Cannavale and Ray Romano and Paul Ben Victor was, and, and Bobby Finaro it was just such a treat. I got to meet some great people. I mean, even extras and stand-ins and crew members, and it's just a real. It, there was a lot of camaraderie there. Uh, the the one. To the, the one the most vivid thing that happened was that uh, when I went to my when we filmed that first uh, episode, the pilot Marty had directed. He, um, I went to my dressing room after a rehearsal and noticed that I thought I'd been in the wrong room. So I I went back out and checked the name and it was me. So I went back in and I didn't understand what looked different. There was a package in there. That's what made it look different. And there was a bottle of wine and with a card it was a handwritten note that said, Armin, uh, good to be working together again, Marty S., you know. And I thought, oh, my God, the guy got me a bottle of wine. He wrote a note. And I found out the other cast members had received the same, uh, uh, you know, gift. And I went up to him after we filmed. uh, I said, gee where's Marty, I was so shocked by that no one's ever done anything like that. That was so nice of you. Thank you so much. He says, "Well, that's what we do. Uh, we be nice to each other. We come to work. We we ex- we have a good experience together. And we enjoy each other. that's what we do. We we be nice to each other." Jesus, well, Here's a guy. At the, here's a guy at the apex of all of the accolades you can imagine but he likes coming to work he leaves all of the accolades home he he just wants to enjoy doing what he loves best and he wants everyone to do the same and and that means everybody and man it just doesn't get better than that as to why um uh, it didn't uh, uh make it through they uh i believe they did start filming a uh, t- i think there were creative uh, differences i don't know what they were because as i was filming uh from episode to episode and i was going to the to the readings and whatever i didn't notice anything that was uh, amiss but apparently there were some creative disagreements that were going on that i knew nothing about and uh i guess the uh, the the new uh head of hbo was not uh, pleased with the numbers that were coming in, and I think they were between uh, 300,000 and 600,000 uh, viewers per episode. It was it was growing little by little, but it, it wasn't punching those huge numbers that they at HBO I think has grown to uh, expect. And so they, I think they were concerned about the budget, uh, and uh, they fired. I guess they fired the. Terry was fired that was in the that was in the news that Terry was fired the writing staff was fired and they I I believe they did uh, start with a new writing staff uh they started uh filming for a second season and there was I guess a collective decision was made that it wasn't working out for one reason or another and the second season was canceled uh I don't know exactly uh, I don't know exactly why I wish I did.
0: No, it's the question is just designed to hear your thoughts from your prism. You know, of course, many moving parts, many variables.
1: It's way above my pay grade, you know, beyond, you know, beyond doing the work that I do, I'm not that familiar with what goes on behind the scenes. And, uh, I was, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty devastated by that. I thought, Oh my, because that's when I sold my home and I, I moved to Connecticut to be closer to New York and uh, I just thought, oh my God! It, you know, I was, I was sure there was going to be a second season. You know, but they, they were planning on it. They had said so, and I thought, oh my God, canceling it! Oh gee, but it would have been nice. Uh, I, right? but y- y- you move on. You move on. You forget it, and you know. But it was a nice. I, anyone that anyone that uh, logs on to HBO and watches Vinyl is going to have a. Uh, uh, is is, is going to? I guarantee they're going to enjoy it. A lot, oh, yeah, of a, fun ride. a lot of good work. A lot of good work.
0: Fun was done ride, there. and a lot of uh, a lot of initial wonderful thought and intention was put behind it. Um, is Connecticut home for you now? Is that where you're based? Yeah, yeah, um, I love it here. Last good book you read.
1: The last good book I read is called. I just finished it. It's called. uh, It's by Joe Broadmeadow, a retired captain in the East Providence Police Department, and also the. uh, He was co-written with um, the retired uh, superintendent of the Rhode Island State Police, Brendan Doherty. It's called. um, It's just the way it was. An inside story on the uh, uh, war with the New England mob and other stories. The very, very real excellent narrative, Um, unsanitized uh, firsthand stories from Brendan Doherty on the Rhode Island states on on his 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 agency's battle with organized crime in New England, uh, specifically in the the Providence, Rhode Island area. That was the last good. I just finished it. Excellent book.
0: Favorite music right now. What have you been listening to the past month or so that you're into? New or old?
1: Ah, uh, uh, let me see. I got uh, the Temptations, Simon and Garfunkel, Paul Simon, Everly Brothers, Mariah Carey, Air Supply, The Association, Alvin and the Chipmunks. Uh,
0: Great, nice diverse the, mix. The Kings,
1: the Kings, diver, uh, the Kings, Scottish uh, Borderers, Pipe and Drum, Susan Boyle, Ava, Louis Prima. Uh, let me see, Queen, Journey. Nelia,
0: What journey Portuguese,
1: song? Uh, uh, I think it's, uh, anyway this one was Any Way You Want It.
0: Okay. I was going to say it would be too perfect if it was Don't Stop Believin'.
1: I have Don't Stop Believin'. I have that. I have that. Yeah. The Ronettes, Baby I Love You, uh, Lady Gaga. I've got a whole... Uh, Very eclectic. Have, uh, the Dillards. The Bluegrass Dillards. They used to appear on the Andy Griffith show. Uh, banjos, guitars, uh, fiddles, bass, uh, bass fiddle. Uh, Mandolin, those guys are pretty hot.
0: Awesome. Armin, thank you so much for being a part of this.
1: It's been very nice to talk to you, Vic.